0: Read Genesis 1 again, God knew more than any of us, and yet he delegated the stewardship of his creation to us fallible human beings. If God can delegate, you can delegate.
1: Hello, and welcome to Working with me, Dan Doriani, hosting a podcast where we explore faith, work, culture, and the way believers can make a difference in their corner of the world. Well, hello everyone. Catherine Alsdorf is my guest today. She serves on the boards of the Theology of Work Project and the Carver Project, Christianity Today's President's Council, and numerous other advisory boards. She's a former board member of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and the International Arts Movement. Currently, she teaches and consults with churches on faith and work and leadership, including serving as an adjunct faculty member at Regent College in Vancouver. If you know her name, it might be because she assisted and is listed as a co-author with Tim Keller in the 2012 book, Every Good Endeavor, Connecting Your Work to God's Work, a book that grew out of 10 years of innovative ministry work in Redeemer's Center for Faith and Work. She also founded Redeemer's Center for Faith and Work and served as its executive director for about 10 years, 2002 to 2012. Before that... 1976 to 2002, she was in a variety of leadership roles in the high tech industry and was also the CEO of an online management education company, a hardware software products company, a satellite services company. She got an MBA from UVA and also studied theology at Regent College. So that's a lot of exciting experience. I'm also going to add. Catherine may comment on this. She became a Christian sort of, uh, you know, at the midpoint of life around the age of 40 while in business. So she did not grow up in the church, and so she'll have some different perspectives. So I gave you all uh, the, you know, highlight, the resume stuff. Why don't you give us a short summary of what it was like to work in your career path 1976 onward in the for-profit world?
0: Yes, thank you, Dan, and it's good to be here with you. And I will say I actually did grow up in the church, uh, but as a teenager who thought she knew it all, I left very intentionally and um, very publicly and very decisively mm-hmm. and didn't set foot foot again until... Um, Redeemer started in New York City, and a colleague invited me to church. So uh, it was a long 20-year-plus hiatus away from the church. So
1: Wow, yeah. That, well, um, I'm glad you found your way back. Tell us a few things about uh, your first years and middle years as a, an IT leader.
0: Yeah, um, the career path that only makes sense in retrospect when you've got a God's eyes to look at it. Um, I started as an elementary school teacher, Um, That only lasted a couple years. I was seeking bigger and better adventures in my 20-something mind and got started at the bottom of this very um, think tanky aerospace economics company that was doing the justification before Congress for the space shuttle program and a lot of applications for sea satellites and land satellites and things like that in the early 70s. So um, I started at about as low as you could go. and gradually worked my way up in that organization, becoming a project manager, learning a lot. People invested in me, had a sort of second stage career doing that, decided I needed some more grounding um, academically, went back to business school and ended up in New York City working with a... Uh, venture capital-backed satellite television company, um, which you know was not a government business like I'd been in, but private sector, but still startup and still very much um, new technologies applied to um, current day problems. So did that end right about, toward the tail end of that company, I was asked to take over as CEO. Um, and that was very concurrent, maybe not um, coincidentally, maybe um, in God's economy very intentionally, with also becoming a Christian mm. in a couple months of each other. Um, those two things happened. So I launched my, uh, let's call it exec suite decade of my career as a brand new Christian, um, not really knowing how to be a Christian or knowing how to be a CEO of a company. And I think that is the origination of the work that I've been able to do the last 20 years or so. I was struggling and wrestling with God so much about what does it mean? What's different now that I'm a Christian? Mm. Uh, How am I to live this out in a way that's really distinctive as a Christian? And it didn't seem like there were very many answers to that question. So that took me to my final stage, which was working in the church to help find the answers to that and share it with lots of other people.
1: Yeah, that sounds that sounds very interesting and a, a very quick summary of what is uh, undoubtedly a very complicated career. So let me just uh, play the uh, ignorant person for a minute. Let's uh, just pretend we're talking to somebody who doesn't understand high tech, and they don't know how one becomes a leader in high tech either. So what would you say a leader in a high-tech firm does? And maybe along the way, or you could say, how do you even become a leader in that in the first place? But really, what does a leader do in high-tech?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of unique things about working in that environment. One is, it's not just that it's high-tech, but it's a startup environment Mm -hmm. or a venture capital-backed environment. And I think in many ways, there's more opportunity for women, for my minorities in that kind of environment. It's just, it's all new. It's more, to, more like the Wild West um, in a way. And I think it would be very different than if I had been working for Hewlett Packard or some large established company. But also I think in the tech area, there's a passion for the work. People believe that they're doing something new and innovative that's going to help the world and this is pre-social media, so I'm not quite sure how to speak to that aspect of it, but um, both when I was in aerospace and gradually moving into hardware, software, and then internet kinds of companies, there was this excitement about the work we were doing, the products we were doing. As a matter of fact, once I started to go to church, I started to think, why are my people on Monday to Friday, actually in startup world, it's Monday to Sunday night, but yes, right. you know, the people that were working in the company more excited and passionate about what they were doing than the people in church.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. And
0: I just sort of held those two things side mm. by side and said, all right, they believe technology is going to change the world. Don't we believe the gospel mm. will yeah. change, has changed, will change the world? So that was just a, an interesting juxtaposition, I think. So I think, you know, I didn't, I didn't seek to be a leader. I was thrust into that role. That's a different story for a different time. But um I think what what motivated me to do that role, what maybe made people invite me into the role, and what gave me the energy to persevere in that role was this passion that. We really could do things better. We could serve our customers better in a way. Our product would really make a difference.
1: You you believed in what you were doing.
0: I believed in what I was doing.
1: And that's a powerful motivation to work hard. And then, of course, people love to hire people who believe in the product and believe in the cause, right? Right. And although we don't know each other until now, you seem like a very nice person. People like to hire people who are nice, even for CEOs. I mean... (laughs) There's, you know, sometimes a CEO is supposed to be tough and mean, but don't people like folks that are kind? Even in almost every industry, you can tell me I'm wrong.
0: You know, I, I think um, an engineering-oriented world is less. Oh, it's less of a sham in a yes. way. It's less sort of positioning and politics ways yes. than some other segments of our society
1: So you're saying so, people aren't as nice they, they're not as directed toward niceness and, and of course niceness can be a bad term you know it could be negative they're nice right. meaning they're deceptive um, I, I
0: think I'm there, kind of using the be word more genuine
1: yeah yeah right right
0: there might be a genuineness and yeah. and I think the passion yeah matters a lot.
1: Do people hire for character for for IT firms too or they just hire for passion and skill?
0: Yeah, it's a meritocracy. Yeah. So. Um, no doubt. With the goods and the bads of that. Right. You know, I think as a leader in that, it does sort of get in your soul in a way that's not necessarily what God would like my soul to be doing. Mm. You know, yeah. when you start to learn to judge people's merits yes. in just five seconds of their speaking, that's not. Exactly, a skill that God is that I've done.
1: <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> so. it's 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 a it's an important skill at times, but it's not always an up uh, an, uh, not always a constructive skill.
0: Exactly, I'm right. trying to unlearn it for many yes, situations.
1: Yes, I hear you.
0: But I, you know, I do think there's just opportunity. I the the other the other opportunity in a smaller company. My companies were between 100 and 150 people okay. uh, generally. There's a chance to cross silos yes. more than there might be in a large organization. So I could start in marketing, but also learn a lot about sales. I could learn a lot about engineering. I could learn about a lot about human resources. There, there's a, an ability to understand how the whole institution works not just your little piece of it. So even if I wasn't in charge, I was able to get a broader um, grounding, I think, than I would have had in a larger organization.
1: Yeah, so one of the uh, principles sociologists occasionally mention is that you can know everybody in an organization up to about 150 people. The average person can do that. So it's interesting you said 100, 150, and you could know everything. So let me ask you a little bit more about high-tech and a particular perception people have is that tech companies are flatter mm-hmm. and less structured and maybe partly because they're often startups and they're smaller and also because there's a lot of creativity. So as a general principle people say in business that the more creative people you have, the more flat you need to be and not be um dictatorial top down or even highly directive, you gotta let creative people run. Is that true?
0: Yeah. And I think part of it is just when you have high growth, you haven't had time to establish a strong structure. So actually when I got to Redeemer, it was very flat and it had grown very fast and it took quite a bit of time to sort of move from flatter to a little bit of organizational structure because everybody likes reporting directly into the guy on top. So whatever organization that is. So I think you can enjoy the benefits of that. Um, less structure, less bureaucracy, so to speak, when it's a company that's 150 people or less. Um, but it, it serves good purposes. It also makes it a little bit more chaotic. But managing sort of in chaos is part of what you're doing in that kind of a role.
1: Well, especially in a startup. I mean, you never know what's going to happen next and what's yeah. going to succeed beyond your expectations and what's going to falter, although it looked like it was the best product you had.
0: I, mean, I think what what I enjoyed the most, you know, besides creating a good product, was um, creating a company culture that worked well together as a team, mm. that also had a passion for serving the customer well that had fun, enjoyed each other's creativity. Maybe that's, for me, the most fun part of leading. And I think it sort of ties to being an elementary ed school ed teacher um, in the beginning. You know, when you're a teacher, you're trying to bring the best out of those fifth graders. And when you're a CEO, you're sort of doing the same thing. You're trying to bring the best out of your engineering department, the best out of your marketing department, you know, all the way across the board. There's sort of a I don't know. That's the, that's the fun part of leading the organization side.
1: Yeah. And and fifth graders are mature children and engineers are mature adults. So that there's a parallel there, I think, also. Right? Or
0: you could phrase that the opposite way. <laughs> <laughs> We're <Well, yes. laughs> you all around. immature adults. Yes.
1: Yes. Right. Right. That's good.
0: The phrase playing well in the sandbox yes. applies to corporate a lot.
1: So. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Right. Nobody likes it when somebody takes their their sandwich out of the refrigerator, do they? Yeah. Or anything akin to that. So, in our business, to make things fun, whether it's a profit or non-for-profit, we uh, we like to have individual initiative that lets people flourish. But we also have to have order. And again, startups and tech is associated with individuals flourishing, and mature companies with thousands of people. You know, if you're making cars, we think that's order. There's a lot of order in the way we make cars. But at some point, freedom becomes chaos. You, you almost alluded to that a minute ago. And so, because projects need to be completed, and we have to send it out the door, we have to market it, we have to tell what the specifications are, there is a need for order. So, how did you make your way through that um, tension, that creative tension between creativity, flat organization startup, and the need to be orderly? And say, so, okay, stop Stop reworking this this piece of software. You're done, whether you know it or not. Let's we got to ship it out and sell it. How did you handle that? Yeah,
0: I mean often um I think the leader is the peacemaker between mm. um the engineers who want more time and the account managers who want to get the product to the customer cuz they promised it already. So um, there's that constant tension between making it better or getting it out the door, especially with software. I mean, it's software is never ever done. Mm. So trying to get to a point where you say, okay, this is where we're going to stop this particular dot two of the software. It's a key part of what you're you're doing, managing all the time. You know, I think that learning to live with a little bit of chaos is also an important. Part of it, so I loved playing with the idea of delegating from a scriptural perspective. Thinking, you know, what does that look like? And I remember one time I was talking to Dennis Bakke, who ran a, a Fortune 500 company, and he had talked about the importance of for Christians of being good delegators. And I, you know, I said to him, "What? I, I, I hear you, Dennis. I know we're supposed to do that. Even business schools they say you're supposed to do that, but." Sometimes I'm the one that's going to make the best decision. I know more than the person that I'm supposed to delegate to. And he laughed at me and he said, read Genesis 1 again. Mm-hmm. God knew more than any of us. And yet he delegated the stewardship of his creation to us fallible human beings. If God can delegate, you can delegate.
1: Well, yes. Well, on that line, I mean, every time... I've, so I've been in leadership of not-for-profits more or less constantly for the last 25, 28 years. And time after time, we feel we don't have enough information to make the right decision. I mean, all decisions are made on the basis of insufficient or partial information because we're finite beings. And so we're, even if you have the, the experts in the room, we're still saying, we don't know everything we'd like to know. Yes. And so why not delegate and <laughs> let, let other people learn from their mistakes? Hey, along these lines, uh, of course, along these lines, we, we've emailed back and forth a few times. You make the comment that you try to... You know, as a business leader, of course, you have to pay attention to the bottom line, to profitability. That's what keeps businesses going. And you've said that when you moved over, maybe you can transition to the nonprofit side of your life, that you tried to inspire a bottom line kind of mentality, or awareness at least, to churches and academia. I thought that was a very interesting comment. Can you explain that a little bit?
0: Yeah, I mean, a couple of the, I mean, obviously, I'd, been part of redeemer i understood some of how it worked i wasn't you know total surprise but some of the things that were a surprise and um i wasn't it just seemed like a problem yes. was that often the pro the focus was on a program versus the results of the program mm. if you know what i mean so you know what, what you mean talk about how many people attended but not about whether lives were changed.
1: Or they actually learned anything. Maybe they were just entertained.
0: Whether they learned something here, whether it went into their heart, whether right. they were able to apply it into their yes. daily work. And you know, I think it's it's similar to my engineers could create a really cool gadget, but if it didn't help our customer do something better, then we weren't doing our job. And I think its it was trying to bring that thinking into a church environment, I felt like was really important. And sometimes measurement throws you off. And um, I know churches think that corporations measure things, so they should. <laughs> um, you know, everybody thinks they need to measure things. But if you measure the wrong thing, I think it can cause your work to point in the wrong direction yes, and not accomplish the results that you want to accomplish. And I'm sure you have that as a, as a teacher. So I, so that was, that was a main thing. I, I tried to constantly get people to focus on. Um, I would say often, tell me the name, you know, they would say people say we should do this. And I say, we're in a church. Tell me their name. Mm we we need to be not talking about them as a consumer right we need to be talking about them as a member of the body right and that's you know a very different orientation i think yeah it is another was um i've now learned churches tend to budget one year at a time
1: yes they do <laughs> that's I don't correct
0: think i could have done anything in my business life one year at a time.
1: Although their budgets don't change much from year to year. So they, they sort of pretend they budget one year at a time, but just add 2% and, you, and you've got exactly. an extra
0: budget. Exactly. So right. I, I think it ties with, you can't be strategic if you can't speak the truth in love. Right. Or you can't um, disappoint Yes. So if you're not able to say, "I think the X Y Z ministry can live on the amount of money it's spending this year, and let's take that two percent and put it into this that we're trying to juice up." Mm. I don't know how you can be strategic, yeah. uh, but if you're so afraid of disappointing people, you know, if you can't pull people together toward a common vision of who we're supposed to be collectively, I I think that's just as a that's a leadership organizational problem. It's the brokenness I tried to push against.
1: Hi, I'm John Perkins, Executive Director of the Center for Faith and Work St. Louis. You've been listening to our podcast, Working with Dan Doriani. The center also offers conferences on faith and work throughout the United States. Our goal is to equip formal and informal leaders to make a difference in their corner of the world. We equip Christian leaders to run 10 hour faith and work cohorts on three continents. Please visit our website at faithandworkstl.org to see how your church or organization can form a faith and work cohort for people who have, or aspire to, a leadership role in their workplace. Now back to Dan. Let me pick up on something you said a couple of minutes ago and that is a wise measurement and not just how big your program is. So I'll just, I'll just tell you that uh, this podcast is part of the Center for Faith and Work St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And the main thing we do that's distinctive is have cohorts uh, for current leaders but they end with a project that you will affect as best you can. Some are, you know, they own their own business, so they can certainly do it or they're in charge of a division, and others have a harder time. But you will affect a project that will draw on your expertise, your skills, your control of budgets, the number of people you have who will be your allies in the project to change your corner of the world. So it's not just try to learn stuff. Or become a more pious business person, but actually try to change the little part of the world that God gave you, and and that's our goal is to accomplish that, yes. not just to learn things. So we, we we align on that, I think.
0: Yeah, I mean, we have I call it a work transformation project in the program I teach for Regent and our program at Redeemer, the Gotham Fellows program. We call right. it. Cultural renewal project, right? Right. Uh, you know what? Uh, what can you do in your corner of the world to be God's agent of flourishing or renewal or pushing against brokenness in some yeah. way?
1: Yeah. So we have finite time. So I'm going to ask a question that's uh, very important to me, and that question would be something like this: uh, I want you to comment. You don't have to agree with me, but what I find when I talk to people. Or Christians in the workplace, and talk to them about practicing their faith at work, is that they're very quick to embrace things that are sort of obvious about the ways your faith impacts your work, like be willing to share your faith. Of course, yes, we affirm that. And treat everybody with respect, and, and don't treat people as costs or as assets, but treat them as human beings. And don't try to pay them as little as you can, but try to pay them maybe as much as you can, plausibly especially people at the lower end, you know, new people in the firm. And and Christians will agree with that pretty that set of statements pretty readily. But they have a harder time with systemic issues and big picture integration like a creation care, for example, or exactly how we go about making the greatest profit we can without being exploitative. They're Good at part one that I mentioned and not nearly as good or as quick with part two. I don't know if you agree with that or not. What, do you, what have you found?
0: My view of the root of that is that um, we've had such an individualistic faith mm. in this country. And so it's usually just, what should I do to check off the boxes that I'm a good Christian? as opposed to God has me in this particular place of brokenness, because everything is, for some specific purposes, and it's going to be hard, but my job is to discern where flourishing is happening and where flourishing isn't happening. And it's usually going to be beyond my own cubicle that I have to so if you're, you know, if you're trained just the only thing that matters is between you and God and you know in the end God's going to see how many boxes you have checked then yes that's a little bit simple or but if you really believe God's called you into that role and you know it could be the environment it could be um the dignity of all employees but um there's a lot of tensions in that I don't believe that Honoring the dignity of all employees means that you should never fire someone.
1: Oh, right. Of course. We say that about once every three podcasts, we say that.
0: (laughs) So how do you you hold that tension? I don't believe that um, you should pay staff as much as possible, for example, because if you're paying more, say you have a really good year, and you're paying more than any other job that person could get out there in the world, you're sort of putting handcuffs on them or chains yes. around their ankles. Uh, they can't leave. They've, they've adjusted their lifestyle to a way. So if something happens to your organization, they're up a creek.
1: Golden uh, handcuffs, we call it sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um,
0: so, I, you know, I think there's a lot of tension in that, that in our desire to have rules, and check the box we are making ourselves god
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, as opposed to going to god and saying this is a complex situation
1: right. mm-hmm. how, you,
0: how can you help me discern what i should be doing in this situation i can't do it all i can't protect every employee do all the best products in the world and we're finite in short. And, you know, I'm finite yeah, right. So how do I discern what you're calling me to do in this particular time knowing I can't do it all
1: Right exactly
0: And then I think a corollary to that is how can we not be so judgmental of other Christians they're not doing the thing that we think we do well. So you know we're we're so quick to say, well, you know, how could they ever market with that kind of way? Or
1: right, I, example.
0: Sure. I had to lay off a whole lot of people with no severance.
1: Mm.
0: Just that's what happens. To when save the company,
1: people. that is, not to be mean-spirited. Not to
0: save the company. I nope. mean, okay. went bankrupt. I did my best to save the company, and the, the right. thing went south in the last possible moment. Mm. Now, to some people, that's the most egregious thing a Christian leader could do. And I'm like, well... You know, you, weren't, you never had to do a bridge loan to keep going. So mm. um, I don't think you really understand this circumstance. Right. Why are we being so judgmental to each other? And we it's almost like we're sitting around going, who's higher in God's eyes
1: mm.
0: room? You know, who's, well, I, who's yeah. the most godly in the room?
1: So that's a very good word, that things are very, very complex. And sometimes you have to do things that you would never wanna do. And in a sense, we might say that letting people go without severance was your only option, so don't judge. But let me hit two more topics. Uh, we don't have a ton of time left. Two more topics, kinda of quickly. The first one is you develop leaders. You've, that's been lifelong project of yours when you were in the profit world and the not-for-profit world. What's the greatest joy for you in developing leaders. You can answer it that way. Or uh, if I were a 32-year-old and I'm thrust in a leadership position, what would you say to me? What's just one or two big ideas about how to develop leaders? You can answer it either way you want.
0: I think one is, well, this isn't a how-to, this is the the fruit. One is when you see just a, renewed, a sense of joy that they've been called to the place they're in at the moment. Mm. And I think you know, that takes some theological understanding. That takes a lot of prayer and spiritual formation. But when that happens, you see a change. Mm. And I think the second, honestly, is seeing um, them own the brokenness that they bring into a situation. So to take away that that uh, perspective that the Christians are good and the non-Christians are the bad guys, mm. but that in fact... I'm a sinner saved by grace, and I bring some of my own idolatries into my workplace situation. I bring some of my own brokenness. I think when a person gets to a point that they lament and they repent of that, they become a stronger leader. They are, are more humble. They're more transparent. They're more, more vulnerable, and they're more empowered by God than their own strength.
1: That's great. Thank you. Here's my second question, uh, a pretty tough one. And I'm sure you've been asked this many times, and I have been asked this question many times also. How do you know when to stay in a flawed system and try to mitigate the evil or turn it around or rein in the cruelty? And how do you know when it's time to leave? So in the Bible, we have both, right? Joseph served one pharaoh, autocratic, certainly not a believer. Uh, believed in himself as as a god of some sort, and yet he served because he could reign in the evil of a famine. And then, you know, several hundred years later, Moses made the exact opposite decision. I cannot stay in this environment anymore, and the only thing I can do is leave. And that, that's repeated. That's not the only place in the Bible that happens. People stay in a tough situation, and they also leave a difficult situation and and christians often find themselves torn between trying to shift make some step to mitigate the evil and then they say okay enough i'm, I'm supporting an evil system i've got to get out what do you say when people ask you that kind of
0: question yeah uh, two things a lot of things probably but we all have different um, temperaments and different strengths and different temptations mm. And I think some of us can stay in a certain kind of brokenness longer than others. And it's important to know, like, um, I, I'm tempted by money. Mm-hmm. And in an IPO environment, you could get rich quickly. Mm-hmm. So it's tempting to go into another environment like that for that to happen. And it, it's important to be able to watch myself and see when that's that temptation starts to get the best of me as opposed to I can resist it. So I think knowing yourself, um, seeking God to help you see when you're becoming too subsumed right. in the flawed organization, you're you're becoming too part of it, yep. is one discernment. A second is, do you see glimpses of God's redemptive work there? Hmm. I think we all need to cultivate, cultivate eyes to see where He is working, and sometimes it's just a glimpse. Mm-hmm. But if we can be encouraged by that glimpse, it can often be enough to persevere and and continue to stay. I often tell young people, especially in their 20s, who are very quick to want to jump to the next job, that you will probably face equal or more brokenness in the next place. Because every
1: place is marred by sin in individuals and the system both.
0: And so learn what god has for you in this context and then maybe he's going to want to pull you use you in another situation right but don't pull out cuz it's hard because yeah. that's what we're called to
1: yeah and i know we agree that when we when i ask this question some people have more options than others yes and so somebody may be in a job that's pretty oppressive and it's the only job they have maybe they're in a small town where unemployment is high or they have low skills and they just have to earn money. And so right. they have to endure things that, are, that are, would seem unendurable to other people, but they've got to feed their children.
0: Options right. are a luxury.
1: Yeah, right. That's right. And, and we should always be glad for them. And I know you, you, you said this to me in our interchanges. We should be right. glad for them and not assume them. And certainly don't assume other people have them. Uh, so let me go to rapid fire questions. Are you ready? All right. Yeah. Uh, if you could do anything for one year, no obstacles, no passports, no visas, all the tickets are free, no no planes are delayed for three days, what would you do?
0: What I'm doing.
1: Ah, I love that answer. A
0: little bit longer spring, a little shorter winter. Okay. Uh, but I love what I'm doing right. I, I'm in a really good season of life right now.
1: That's, that's terrific. I'm so glad to hear that. Okay, what is the very best book or most interesting book you have read lately?
0: Tim Marshall's Prisoners of Geography. Mm. So it's not related to Faith and Work, but it is the best 101 overview of the political situation in various parts of the world um, mm-hmm. I could ever imagine getting my hands on. The sequel is, um, the sequel is, I have it right.
1: The read. Powers of Geography.
0: Power, powers of Geography, yes. Right. And um, and both of them are great, and I'm giving them copies to everyone I know, and I'm just loving those books.
1: So you know me now. Are you going to send me a copy? Is that what's, uh, is you that what's coming?
0: Are you, only if you're <laughs> going to read it.
1: Oh, I, I love geography. I always, whenever I travel with my kids, I was always saying things like, do you know why this town is here? And I we talk about the geography of the region and, yeah. and what do mountains do and what do lakes do and so forth.
0: But you'll love this book. I picked it up on the... Um, on the, you know, just the shelf of the bookstore. Never heard anybody talk about it because it had a reference to maps in the title. Uh, I like maps. Yes. So, um, that Anyway.
1: Okay. What do you love most about the church? You, you've enjoyed helping churches with faith and work. That's what you do. I mean, you do a variety of things now, but that's largely what you do. What do you love most about the church?
0: Yeah, I love its origins and its potential. So, mm. Doesn't mean I necessarily like where it is in any given moment, but (laughs) God created it, and there's not that many things God created, and God created it to be His agent of change in the world, Mm. uh, His promise in the world. So the potential, there's no better potential out there than the church. Um, So I love both of those things, Um, and I would love us to lean into both of those things a little bit more.
1: I love your answers. Uh, what would you like to celebrate in five years?
0: Being alive. Okay. <laughs> Me, my husband being alive.
1: Okay. Fair so yes,
0: We're at an age where every year feels like a, an extra blessing. And yes. so being able to be as healthy as we are would be an extraordinary celebration. Mm,
1: that's terrific. I like it. So you don't know this, but I have three daughters who are all very gifted, and two of them are in the corporate world, and one's got a pretty responsible position, and one's taking time off to be a mom. What would you say to a woman in the corporate world? You might not say to a man.
0: Well, typically, um, I would be responding to a shared view of some of the difficulty of being in that role, and I would say. Um, be encouraged. God has you there, uniquely there for a reason, and He knows it's broken, and He knows you've got something to give to push against that brokenness, help help it flourish, and He will give you what you need to do it. Um, and I think there's there's a lot some hard things. I mean, all everyone struggles with something at work, but there's hard things to be a minority or a woman. And I think um, if we don't really wrestle with God as to his calling to us in that situation, then it's hard to um, have the perseverance to continue on.
1: Yeah, that's great. Catherine, thank you so much for candid and wise and uh, I'm gonna say well-rounded and complex answers. It's been a delight to get to know you this way. And thank you for your time and what you're going to give to many people who are going to listen to this podcast.
0: Well, thank you for the chance to talk. You have great questions, and I do pray that it is a blessing for, in some way that God will use it.
1: Working with Dan Doriani is a production of the Center for Faith and Work St. Louis. We seek to promote faithfulness in the workplace, in education, in discipleship, and in the stories of believers who've applied their faith at work. If you want to put your faith to work and change your corner of the world, visit our website, the Center for Faith and Work St. Louis. Look for faithandworkstl.org. That's one word. We'll help you start a cohort with like-minded believers who also want to practice their faith at work. This podcast is donor-supported. To keep us going, please donate on our website. Maybe more importantly, you can support us by listening, by subscribing, by sharing, by liking us, by posting us on your favorite platform, or go old school and tell a friend.